But I'm so glad that every single one of you are here this evening. I'm so glad that we get to celebrate this together. Um, so we will jump right in. We've been talking the last several weeks about what it means to take up your cross as we've been going through Matthew chapter 10, what it means to live on mission for Christ, that Christ came and, and was carrying out the mission of God. And in John, he says, so as my father sent me, so I send you. Uh, for those that would call themselves a disciple of Christ, somebody that knows and has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, someone that we say that has made Jesus the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their life, that now they are to go out and they are to, as Jesus said, to take up their cross. In other words, meaning that when that cross beam went on your shoulders, you already knew what the end was, that you were no longer living for yourself. When Jesus, that cross beam went across his shoulders, he knew what the ending was. He knew that he was doing that for you and for me as an incredible act of love and selflessness and humility because he knew we needed it. That there was no other perfect lamb that could be the sacrifice and have his blood spilled to be the sacrifice for your sins and for mine. And he took our punishment, the beatings that he went through, the, the crucifixion and buried, being buried with our sins, he took that for you and for me. And he rose again. Spoiler alert, before we jump into the passage, he rose again. That he didn't stay dead, that he defeated not just sin, but that he defeated death. And so I want to go back into uh, Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 62, and, and start really at a time that we can really celebrate. Uh, just before this, Jesus is crucified, they then, they then bury him, and then starting in verse 62, chapter 27, Matthew records, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Uh, Pilate would be the Roman governor. If you want to do a fascinating research, if you get done researching like time travel and everything else that there is to research, apparently there's a thing called YouTube that you can research stuff on. By the way, that's not real research. Everyone's like, I've been doing a lot of research. I was like, you have Google and YouTube. Stop telling me you're doing a lot of research. You're not a PhD. What they, something fascinating if you want to go down a history rabbit hole is the politics that were recorded and playing into this time. You have to remember, Pilate is only over Israel, and it was almost as punishment. No Roman governor wanted to go to Israel. It was a very tough place to go and try to keep peace. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had a lot of money and influence in Rome, and they kept having all of these rebellions, and it was just this constant place of disorder and, and no peace. And then when Pilate allows the Jews to crucify Jesus, understand the Roman governor and the Jewish officials never got along. It was only in sovereignty of God that at one point they agreed to fulfill all of these passages, to fulfill all of these uh, prophecies that had been foretold. And Pilate says his wife had a dream that they shouldn't be doing this, that Jesus was innocent. Pilate, it seems, upon meeting Jesus, realizes this guy isn't a bad guy. And he washes his hands of it because he wants nothing to do with it. And so they crucified Jesus. And then now here they are. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, back in verse 62, went to Pilate. Sir, they said, 
Re-remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, now when they're saying that deceiver, they're talking about Jesus, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. The last deception will be worse than the first. The first deception that they're claiming is that Jesus called himself the Messiah, the Son of God, that he was a blasphemer, and that was the argument they used to crucify him. And so here are the Pharisees and the Sadducees who have done nothing except go against Roman law and against their own Levitical law to go after Jesus, and then they are calling Jesus the great deceiver, saying this great deceiver said he was going to rise after three days, and so this last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate's response here demonstrates, and again, this isn't biblical, this is just my take on it, that Pilate kind of had an understanding of who Jesus was. Because Pilate answers, he says, take a guard. And in the original language, what he's really saying is, you use your guards. I'm not using my Roman soldiers for this. Now, I don't know why, what the reasoning was, whether he believed that when Jesus said I was going to raise again after three days, Pilate would have witnessed everything that happened at the crucifixion. He would have witnessed all of these strange happenings, the temple curtain being torn in two, the storms, all of those things, and that if Jesus said that he was going to rise in three days, Pilate may have been concerned and actually believed that he was going to. So he didn't want to put Roman soldiers at risk, or he didn't want to take the blame for it if, in fact, his disciples were going to come and take him. Whatever that is, I just always find it fascinating that there was some sort of belief system in Pilate that he didn't want to use his men. So he looks at the temple priest and says, no, you use your temple police. You use your temple guards. You go guard him. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Chapter 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. I also find the wording, some of the guards. That meant some of the guards ran for their lives. Some of their guards may have known exactly what just happened and turned and realized they didn't really care about their jobs anymore. There was something much more powerful at play. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, now remember, these are the guys who are saying this great deceiver, this great deceiver Jesus, we have to protect ourselves from him. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money. 
telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. The irony here of them calling Jesus a great deceiver. Jesus does what he said he would do and rises again. And so the people that were accusing him of being a deceiver take a large sum of money. They give it to the guards and say, here's what you're going to do. We don't want this word to get out. And every time you say, like, I don't want anybody to know about this, this is what happens. If this report gets out to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Ready? So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Everybody knew about it. And they kept their money, it seems. They were so concerned that what Jesus said was true. They were so concerned about themselves. They were so concerned about what people thought about them that they were going to lose their power and privilege and whatever else that they were going to try to stop it no matter what. That's a message for another day. But I want to understand the importance of the resurrection. And I think we would all, if, if you know Jesus and you'd say he is the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life and you follow him, I think you would say, if I'm like, the resurrection's important, you'd be like, yes. But what I want to challenge today is, do you live like it every day? Do you live like the resurrection is actually that important to you every day? So I wanted to jump to 1 Corinthians 15. If you would, I actually have to turn the pages. I think it just appears on the screen for you guys. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to start in uh, verse 1. And I want to see, and hopefully the reason that we are in Matthew is, becomes obvious here, but... Uh, the city of Corinth, where Paul is writing to, uh, and if you've been here before when I've talked about it, the city of Corinth would make today's Las Vegas look like a small country church. The city of Corinth is where the one city where slaves could be free and go and be able, because their status didn't matter, to make a lot of money, and there was a lot of opportunity. Uh, there were so many different temples and so many different belief systems in the city of Corinth, uh, Greek gods and goddesses, and it was just known kind of like how we view um, Las Vegas. I'm not getting into a lot of details because we do have children in here this evening. But in the city of Corinth, and Paul is there ministering, what ended up happening is this church started. And I love it because... All of these people from different belief patterns, from different things that they believed in, from different things that they worshipped, all come together and follow Christ. But like so many of us, when we go into church and we start this relationship, we're like, wow, this is awesome. But you know what I liked from what I used to do? I think we should do that too. And different people were bringing in other belief systems with them, and they were saying, yes, we believe in Jesus, but also there's this other cool thing we used to do at this temple. And so this whole letter, Paul is instructing them, stop doing this, stop doing that. By the way, this is bad. You are laughing about this, and it is not a laughing matter. And you go through the whole book, and you get to 1 Corinthians 15, and he spends a large amount of time explaining why the resurrection is important. Because there was a belief system saying that there was different beliefs, that the resurrection didn't actually happen, but we believe in Jesus because he was a great guy. Uh, the belief system... That Jesus did die for our sins, but he didn't necessarily rise again. Or that he rose again, but we're not going to. That when once we die, it's all over. And all these belief systems were starting to sneak into this church in Corinth, the city of Corinth. And so Paul wants to be extremely 
clear. So there is about 59 verses in 1 Corinthians 15. Take a deep breath. We're not going through all of them tonight. But Paul wants everyone to be understanding of how important the resurrection is. So let's start in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, by the way, the gospel is just a word for good news, and the gospel specifically that he's talking about is the good news that Jesus Christ defeated sin and death. So he's saying, by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So this is Paul's gospel message. If you're wondering what that good news of Jesus Christ is, that's what it is, that, he, that Christ died for our sins, that He took your punishment and my punishment onto His shoulders. He took the beating that was deserved for you and for me. He took the torture that was deserved for you and for me. He took it on His shoulders. He shed His blood. And when He died, He took your sins and my sins to the grave with Him. And that's great news. That He was buried, meaning that our sins went with Him into the grave, And then the best news is that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Again, if he just died, that's no different than a lot of just good people. But the fact that he raised again from the dead, leaving your sins and my sins, that that payment was done for our sins, that we no longer have to pay the price for our sins, that they are in the grave when we seek forgiveness from him. And then to make things very clear, he starts to walk through a list. He says, and then he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the, <clears throat> and then to the twelve, meaning the disciples. Excuse me. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Uh, it is believed this James in particular, because there was two James that were uh, both disciples. They believe this James is actually Jesus' half-brother. And at one point, which will be in a couple weeks, Jesus' family, his brothers, his half-brothers and sisters, uh, they don't really believe that he's the Messiah. Uh, but now he appears to James, who then becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So he is presenting a case. Paul is a lawyer. He is trained in the law, and he was above and beyond what anybody else at that time as a Pharisee. He was so intelligent and so sharp. So most of his books are written uh, as a way of presenting a case in a court of law. In fact, the book of Romans is used in some law schools as a way to perfectly lay out a case in a court of law. So he's laying out this case, and then he starts to go through. By the way, if you are accused of a crime, and you meet with your lawyer for the first time, And they're like, hey, do you have any eyewitnesses? And you're like, I only have roughly 536 eyewitnesses. (laughs) Do you know what the lawyer would say? Good. I'll take your case. That sounds fantastic. So Paul is saying, if you're wondering if this really happened, he goes through a list of all the people that sees him and then continues and says, most of whom are still alive. So these eyewitnesses are still alive and going. 
the first thing I want you to see tonight is the truth of the resurrection. The truth of the resurrection. The, the eyewitnesses, as Paul explaining, as he would in a court of law, that there is just no way around it when you have this many eyewitnesses in something. He wants you to understand the importance. He wants you to understand that this holds up. In fact, there was really nobody that doubted the resurrection. There were people that didn't believe in it, but there wasn't really people that doubted it because it was so obvious, especially if you were in Israel, especially when there's this many eyewitnesses. And the eyewitnesses, when Jesus was captured, they were scared and they were hiding. And then they saw the risen Jesus and they couldn't shut up until people actually killed them. And they all continued in the same mindset that those 12 apostles didn't differ. There's been other uh, world religions that have started up, and in trying to mimic, they'll start with 12 elders, and they will try. And usually in the first two to three years, all the elders start to see the one guy who's getting attention, uh, different cults, I will say, and they, they will then start to go say, well, I want that, and they'll start to go do something else. The 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, held to the same word, held to the same truth, and ended up dying for it and never wavered. Why? Because they had seen the resurrection, and it changed their lives dramatically. So the truth of understanding the resurrection is life-changing. Believing the resurrection is a crucial part of believing the gospel, and that's what Paul is trying to explain at this beginning part. Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you are here this evening and you have never called out, that is about as simple as you can say it. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then Paul continues in verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Uh, I hear pastors or in Christian circles, or if you grew up in church, people will say, they'll quote these lines from Paul, and they're like, hey, I am the least. Or they'll use Paul's other quote and say, I am the chief of sinners. And somehow they're saying it in an arrogant way, which I'm sure I've been guilty of as well. But you're kind of bragging about how bad you are. Do you not pick up on the... No? But when Paul said this, he was always trying to, I believe, deliver a very important message. Because Paul knew that he actually was the sworn enemy of Jesus. That he dedicated his life to stopping the gospel from getting out. It was hurting his belief system, and so he was armed with letters to go and stop it, that he would imprison people, that he oversaw the stonings of people as the lead witness. So Paul is saying, when he's saying persecuted, I can't prove this, but it's usually implied, Paul killed believers. Paul wanted them stopped. He made orphans out of children whose parents believed in God. Paul knew what he had done. And so Paul, when he's saying, by the way, I'm the chief of sinners, it carries a lot of weight to it. It carries a very strong saying. He's not proud of it in any way. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, 
I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Paul is saying, listen, if I can know Christ, if I can have a relationship with God, knowing what I've done, so can you. So can you. If I have spent and dedicated with zeal persecuting the church, and Christ still appeared to me and saved me, and now is using me to deliver that same gospel I tried to stop, just know he is all-powerful and he is the same loving God that loves you and you can know him as well. So Paul, if Paul could know the Lord, anyone can know the Lord. That is the truth of the resurrection. We are called a new creation when we come to know him, that all things have become new. Number two, we have the hope of the resurrection. The hope of the resurrection. In verse 12, he starts, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And I want you to notice some of these key phrases he's going to use in the next few verses. Here, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all of all people most to be pitied. Paul is saying if you cannot believe in the resurrection, but you're saying you're following God, you're wasting your time. Your faith, your belief system is useless and futile. That you, among all people, if you think that it's just good for this life, but once you die, that's it, you are most to be pitied. As human beings, we have a very limited capacity to understand life outside of what we know it. We only know this tiny little fraction that there is actually no way to fully understand how tiny our lifespan is in comparison to eternity. And so he's saying, if, if you think you only have Christ just for this life here on earth, that's really sad. Then you don't understand the bigger picture at all. Verse 20 says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Amen? Amen. He's saying that because Adam, sin came into existence because of Adam, came in through a man, so a man had to defeat. So when Jesus lived a perfect life, he demonstrated that it can be done, that he was the Messiah, the Savior, the perfect Lamb of God, and he defeated sin. And when he rose again from the dead, he defeated death. 
Drop down to verse 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Paul is understanding that when he, the last thing to be defeated is death. And after that comes eternal life in the kingdom of God. That is the hope of the resurrection. A hope that is placed in God cannot be defeated by anything, including death. Of Philippians 3, 10, 11, Paul writes, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's saying if he's suffering, and Paul went through a whole list of things that he went through. He went through being beaten. They hit him with rocks and left him for dead. They beat him and imprisoned him in multiple cities. He's been in a shipwreck. He's been bitten by snakes. He's, you name this long list of stuff that he went through, and his response is, well, yeah, suffering's okay because that means I un- can understand what Christ went through for me. I can understand how much Christ loved me. And Christ said, if you follow after me, if you live like I do, the world is going to hate you. It's a promise. But Paul had no fear of death because he had a faith in the resurrection and knew that this life on here on earth is just temporary. Uh, he, the Hebrews 6.19, the first part of the verse says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. The hope of the resurrection is that no matter what life throws at us, no matter what we go through here on earth, eternal life is so awesome and so unfathomable that the things on earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That we will spend eternity with Him To say that this is a drop in the bucket, to say this is life is just a drop in the ocean, none of those things can actually clearly define how insignificant the life here on earth is with what eternal life will be with our Savior. Paul David Tripp says that hope for the Christian is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result. The hope is that a Savior who has never broken his word A Savior who said, I am the Messiah, and they called him the great deceiver, so they killed him for it, but then they're automatically concerned because he said he was going to rise again in three days, so they call him a deceiver again, and then he does that, which has never been done before and will never be done again, demonstrating his all-powerful nature when he says, I have died for you because I love you, call on me, ask for forgiveness, and I will come into your life and change it forever, he means it. That there is an incredible hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And drop down to verse 33. He says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. 
meaning that the resurrection is real. We put our hope in the resurrection. And if we, our hope is in the resurrection, how can we not live like it so that everyone knows who God is? If we have this hope, how can we not tell everyone that we come in contact with? Then number three, the victory of the resurrection. So we have the truth of the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection, and finally, the victory of the resurrection. Read verses starting in verse 54 with me. Paul writes, when the, perishable has clo- clo- <clears throat> when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That is the victory of the resurrection. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the two things that people in this area are most afraid of. There was a large study done a couple of years ago. Number one was death. That shouldn't surprise anybody. Number two was not having friends and not having community. So we talked about what it means to have community and what it means to invite people in to know Christ and have that community that can only really be found in the unity that Christ provides. But number one, people are afraid of death. But in believing in the resurrection, in seeing what Jesus was able to do, we can cry out, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Romans 8. Starting in verse 31. Paul continues to write, Wait, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whose God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one, Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What do we have to fear if Christ has defeated death? Where, O death, is your victory? We are more than conquerors. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. 
This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who though faith are get that right? Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of troubles. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, perishes even, through refined, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is what you have access to. This is what is given to you when you believe that what Jesus Christ said he did is true. So the big question, then I have three to follow it for you this evening. Number one, are you living as one who believes in the resurrection? Are you living as one who believes in the resurrection? I'm going to break it down into three other questions. Number, question number one, do you understand the truth of the gospel? Do you understand the truth of the good news that Jesus Christ defeated sin and death? If you're here this evening and you have never called out to God, asking for the forgiveness of your sin, if you've never called out understanding who He is and who you are, and called out to Him knowing that only He alone can save because of what He did, that He paid the penalty for your sins, that He loves you, that He cares for you, that He did it because He wants to welcome you into His ever-loving arms and take you on as His own. The price has already been paid for. It's you calling out, believing, as Romans 10, 9 said, calling out, believing that your sins have been paid for and that he resurrected, that he was resurrected for you. Our prayer is always that you come to that conclusion so that you can also cry out, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? That you can enter into that hope that is only found in Christ. Question two. Is your hope found in Christ alone? Is your hope found in Christ alone? You see, all of us have put our hope in something. All of us, every day, we put our hope in something, and that hope is what drives us. One of my, well, I used to watch a lot of survival shows. The number one thing about survival, I have two boys that don't stop, so now I really don't watch much at all. The key thing with survival is hope. You have to have hope. You have to have hope that you will survive. You have to have hope that you will be rescued. You have to have hope. So all of us, in some way or another, we put our hope in something. And how you live demonstrates what your hope is in. How you live demonstrates what you're chasing after. How you live demonstrates what you are are wanting to see happen in your life and that you believe will happen if you continue down this path. So we all have put our hope in something, and how we live demonstrates what we've put our hope in. Ed Welch describes this way. He says, if you are hopeless, there may be many contributors, but two are certain. One, you have placed your hope in something other than God, and it has let you down. And two, you may understand that Jesus conquered death, but you live as though he is still in the grave. 
all hopelessness is ultimately a denial of the resurrection. So if you know Christ, the question is, how often, and we say this all the time, you have to preach the gospel to yourself every day. How often do you stop and meditate on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means? How often do you stop and, and come and, and, and think and meditate on and, and study the scriptures that tell you just what a powerful God we serve is? How often do you stop and, and in humility realize who you truly are? I talk about it regularly. I look in the mirror and I'm not hiding from anyone. I know what a sinful, wretched human being I am. I know that it must be an incredibly loving God who loved me. But if God is so powerful that he can have his son rise from the dead, I know he is continually doing a work in me. And I can put my hope in him, knowing that he is going to continue to guide me as he promised he would. But the moment I stop understanding what he did, the moment I stop understanding that I only ever sinned against him before I knew him, the moment I stop realizing what that resurrection meant, that I can be a new creation, is when I start to get a big head when I start to think I can do it on my own and by myself. And I start putting my hope in what I can do and not in what God can do. The question for you is how often do you meditate on the gospel? How often do you meditate on the truth of the gospel, on the truth of the resurrection, and just how powerful God is? That any sufferings that we endure here on earth, any trials that we go through here on earth, pale in comparison to the joy and the rejoicing that we will do for eternity with our Savior. And then the third question, do you celebrate the victory you have in Christ? Do you celebrate the victory that you have in Christ? I want to go back to Matthew. After he raises again at the end of chapter 28, Starting in verse 16, it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. The last few weeks we've been talking about what it means to take up your cross. What it means to take up your cross and follow after him. He set the example of what that looks like when he put the cross on his shoulders, when he was crucified for you and for me. When he rose again defeating death, he demonstrated the power that those who believe in him have now have access to. And now he is sending them out. It is now Jesus' disciples, including you if you know him, to take up our crosses and obey. We are to go. How do you celebrate the victory you have in Christ? By telling everybody about it. How do you represent Christ? By living with hope in a world filled with hopelessness. So how do you celebrate the victory you have in Christ? The resurrection day should be a Phenomenal day it is. It's when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, but that should be every single day of our lives. 
And what are the greatest promises we tend to forget? Jesus said, and surely I am with you always. That we in this life are not alone. That we're not trying to go it ourselves. He didn't just say, hey, here's what I did. Now go and do it by yourself. Let me know how it turns out. But he continues to be our guide. That he continues to walk with us, show us, give us the strength and the courage. We continue to follow after him. And he says, I am sure and surely I am with you always. I want to go back to 1 Corinthians 15, the last two verses, 57 and 58. It says, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Surely I am with you always. The victory has already happened. The gates of hell cannot hold back the gospel message, cannot hold back the church. Romans tells us we are more than conquerors. We can cry out, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Verse 58, therefore, knowing all of this, knowing what has been accomplished, knowing that you have the victory, that you are more than conquerors, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We do a lot of things in life that don't last forever. But our labor for the Lord is not in vain. So this evening, you're either in one of two categories. You either know Christ or you don't. There's no middle ground. You either believe in the resurrection or you don't. There's no middle ground. I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer, and my prayer for you right now is I'm going to take a moment or two just for you to pray. I'm going to take a moment for you just to think through where you are. I want you just to talk to God. And then after this evening, when when we conclude, please let us know how we can help. Please let us know if there's questions like, I don't know what that means, or what does it mean to know Christ? Or I know Christ, but what does it mean to live for him? The entire reason that we started Hope Church is to have those conversations. Please let us know how we can talk with you and how we can pray with you. So let's just go to the Lord for a moment or two, just silently where you are, and then I will close this in prayer. Lord, our prayer this evening is that you would be magnified. But our prayer is that you, your truth would be known. Maybe there's people here who have never entered into that relationship with you. Lord, I pray that your truth, your word would penetrate their hearts, that they would see their need for you. Lord, maybe there's people here this evening who do know you, but they've just become callous to your word. They've just become callous. It's just going through the motions, showing up at church, doing the things they're supposed to be doing. Lord, I pray that you would reach as only your word can into their hearts. That they would just be overcome, that all of us would just be overcome with the power of your resurrection. That you are an all-powerful God. That you are a God who holds true to his promises. 
But I pray that we leave here a changed people, not for our glory, but for your glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name.